All right, Trinity Church, how you doing? Yeah, good. You are awake, you are alive. Can we thank the worship team? What a great job to get us focused today. And as you'll see as we dive into God's word today, you'll see that the songs have been, just like every week, thoughtfully put together to get our hearts ready for what already scripture has been shared and now as we get to look together. So my name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity. It's a privilege to get to be with you today. I've not been in this role the last couple of weeks due to some travel stuff, but I'm back and excited to be with you today. Bill and Bill Sr. and Hilke did a great job kicking off this series on parables. And today we're looking forward into a new one today, the parable of the lost sheep. If you have a Bible today, if you want to open it to Luke chapter 15, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament. Chapter 15 uh, is where we're going to be today, and we're going to pick that up. Also, in your Trinity this week, you have notes that look like these. If you want to have those out, that'll help you kind of track with us this week and just be able to kind of stay in, in, in step with kind of where we're going. I've loved um, this series already and just so many good things. Uh, God's bubbling to the top. Anytime we get to look at the words of Jesus, we walk away better. We walk away as people who are encouraged, people who are convicted, but people who keep seeing the love and the heart of God in powerful ways. And so I'm excited to look into this with you today. Just before we get into that, one quick reminder, as Allison shared, we are having our congregational meeting today. It's at 4.30 right here. We'd love for you to be a part of it. Come one, come all. There will be a couple things of business that our members will vote on, but everyone is welcome to be a part of it. And within that, I'm gonna actually share some vision from what our pastors and our elders have been praying about and planning for over the last few months about what we believe is Trinity's really next step trajectory-wise and, and really what God's calling us to. So I'd love for you to get to hear that first person and we'll be able to share that uh, this afternoon. So here's the question, how do you explain astrophysics to a child? First of all, you have to understand what astrophysics are, which I don't, okay? But let's assume, let's make a huge assumption for a moment that I did. How would you begin to share that with a child? And, and what you would do is you would use illustrations and comparisons to things she understood. You'd use things from her everyday life. That's what parables are. Parables are Jesus taking the heart of God, communicating the kingdom that he came to bring to a group of earthbound people who just could not grasp it. So what did he do? He took common, ordinary illustrations and comparisons in everyday life and helped them understand this is what my father's heart is. This is what the kingdom is like. I love so much the tagline for this series Kingdom secrets hidden in plain sight. And that just really communicates that idea again. Jesus is taking something so profound, something so other, and really helping it become tangible to us, helping us be able to understand, okay, I get a little bit more, Jesus, what you're saying and what you're after and what, what God's heart is like. And that's what I love about this series is that week over week over the summer, we're just going to invite you to come again and just to see and to hear and to sense, God, this is what you're after. This is what your heart is like. This is the kingdom that you came to establish. 
And we as your citizens wanna live like it in your kingdom. So today as we dive in and we look particularly at this particular um, parable of the lost sheep, I want you to do this. I want you to look in the mirror today. And when I say that, what I mean by that is it's easy to look out the windows and think about, oh, if so-and-so were here today, this would be so helpful for them. Don't worry about so-and-so, you're here. And think about, God, what do you have for me today? Where is my heart astray? Where is my perception and my values? What am I missing about your kingdom? And look at these three big ideas in the mirror today. Number one, God loves lost people. Number two, you were once lost. For those of you who are here today and you would say, I've been found. And then number three, think about this in relation to those If this is what God does, if he loves lost people, how much do you love them? How much do you love them? That's the three things I want to kind of keep percolating in and around your mind as we look at this passage today. Every week we have a now what statement with the goal of saying, how does this actually apply? What do I do with this this week? And here it is in your notes and on the screen. If you're part of the 99, and that will make sense in just a minute, be grateful that you've been found and join the search party for your ones. Let's look at what this is. Number one in your notes, lost people were drawn to Jesus. Lost people were drawn to Jesus. We're in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse one. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You can just hear the disgust in their voice. I can't believe it. Why would he allow these people to be near to them, near to him? And what I want you to see today is often we'll read Luke 15 and we'll read right over this incredibly crucial part of the context and just go right into the parables. But I really want to spend some time today looking at the context with you. The setting makes everything else come alive when you understand who we're looking at and who's being drawn to Jesus. I want you to see that from the very beginning today, people who were irreligious, AKA tax collectors and sinners, they actually wanted to be near Jesus. No one paid them to do that. No one made them to do that. There was no rule compelling them. They actually wanted to spend time with the Son of God. And I want you to see the power of that. And I also don't want you to see the disgust from the Pharisees and the tax, or the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and and how really just horrified they were that Jesus would even let them close. This is powerful for us today. Now, the problem is we lose something 2,000 years later. There's something lost in translation because we might say, so Jesus had some IRS agents and some people who'd made some mistakes want to hang out with him. Like, what's the big deal? Like, that's weird, but okay. There's so much more to the story. So let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, to understand tax collectors and sinners, let's go back into that first century culture. And we have to understand both who these people were as as well as why no one wanted them around. And that will help make a little bit more sense. Tax collectors were traitors. There's no other way to say it. Now, Now you, just when I said the word a minute ago, IRS agent, some of you bristled. Okay, it's like, I don't like people taking away my money to taxes. Some of you have been audited and you've had very personal experiences with IRS agents and you're just like, ugh, let me take this two times a hundred. Because here's the thing you and I can't fathom. 
We've never lived in a place that's been absolutely defeated by another nation and that group of people are in power. That's what was going on in first century Israel. Rome had taken over the world decades before and what they had done, they had realized, hey, we could come in and just completely trash the place or what's actually gonna give us more revenue is if we just tax the snot out of them. So let's do that. So what they did is they just had their, their soldiers and their guards all around and what they would do is like, they realized, hey, we don't even have enough people to gather this outrageous tax from this conquered people. So instead, we'll hire their own to get the taxes that we want from them. That's what a tax collector was. And even on top of it, they would say that we're not gonna pay you to re recoup these taxes from your own people, but here's what you can do. You can charge whatever you want and you keep the difference. That's how you'll fill your pockets. So now you start thinking a little bit more. Now all of a sudden some more stories are coming through your mind. You're thinking about Zacchaeus. A wee little man who was a tax collector and nobody wanted anything to do with him. You think of a guy named Levi, or also known as Matthew, that Jesus, walking by his tax collector booth, said, follow me. And he dropped everything and did. Now, all of a sudden, those narratives are coming a little more to life because we're like, these guys were horrible people. They were horrible. And, and everyone knew it and, rightly, and felt rightly so. They really were, they were the most traitorous type of people on the planet in their region at that time. And, and to give you a little more perspective, maybe this would help. I, I was at Forest Home the middle two weeks of June serving in a role that I really love there called pastor in residence. And I was with a friend of ours named Eric Taunus. Eric has been here a couple times to preach at Trinity. And he shared this story that I thought was so powerful related to the idea of how people view traitors. Um, he shared, take a look at this picture. This is called the House of Terror. And this is in Budapest, Hungary. And when you look at it, I even, I'm so just blown away by the architecture. You'll note the word terror is actually, if you look at the ceiling around it, that's the sun shining in that creates that word upon the building. And, and he shared with us that building was actually a place where torture took place. And after regimes have been overturned, now it's a place set up as a monument so that people will never forget. Here's the interesting thing. This isn't just a monument to what happened under the Nazi regime. It's also right after the Nazis left, the communists came in. So you have back-to-back -back oppressive regimes who were completely just devastated the people of Hungary. So it's there in Budapest, and then what he shared was, when you're finishing the tour of this building, you end up down in the basement, and as you do, you walk past a hallway that you can't miss. Take a look at the picture, it's called the Wall of Victimizers. The Wall of Victimizers, and you can see some pictures over there, and what's there are a group of Hungarian people that sold out their own people to the Nazis, to the communists. Their pictures are there, their names are there, and the list of what they did remains today. So as people walk by, you can just imagine the horror of being related to one of those people. That's my great-great-grandfather. Can you imagine, and just the stigma of the way that this group of people, and none of us would look at them and say, how dare they be so frustrated and hurt by that kind of treason? We all kind of get it as much as we could. Here's what I want you to hear. That's what happened in Hungary. This is what happened in Israel. 
That's who tax collectors were, the kind that we're talking about today. Not merely people who take money for the federal government, people who took money for another government and then kept everything that was on top. Understandably so, people that, that were vilified. Now, be careful. That's why I want you to know the context. Be careful that we often, as we'll read these narratives, we very much, we just, you don't have to be in church long to understand that a Pharisee is something you didn't want to be. But if you go back to the first century in Israel, the Pharisees were a group of people who were calling the people of Israel back to the law. After generations of being totally discarded and, and just a, a lost group of people, they had good intentions in what they were trying to do, but what they had forgot was their need themselves for God and created a list, created a religion that Jesus came to dismantle. So before you just naturally slide in and go, man, if I was there in that setting and, and the, the sinners and the tax collectors, I would just put my arm around them and said, I'm so glad you're here. Go, Jesus. I have a feeling more of us would have been standing over here. Does he even know who he's talking to? Those are horrible people. God doesn't even love them. The other group called sinners, uh, the word we, uh, we know from reading scripture that in some ways we could say, well, that applies to everyone, right? We've all broken God's law. We've all broken his standard of holiness. Therefore, all sinners. But this word means something more than that. It means a group of people basically who were brazen in their disregard for the law. They just didn't care and didn't care what you thought of them as a result. So for instance, where the law said that you're not to work on the Sabbath, that was the day these people came out and peddled their goods. When the law said that there should be no gods that were to compete against Yahweh, their homes were littered with idols. Where the law said that God was against sexual immorality, these people were prostitutes. So let's get a good understanding of who we're talking about. People who were traitors, and people who had complete disregard for the ways of God, that's the group of people who want to be near Jesus. Wow. That makes me pause. As I was preparing for this week and think about this, look at the question in your notes. Simple question, who draws near to you? Who draws near to you? Who are the people that most seem to want to be near you? And as I was processing that, I thought, man... God, for, for us in Southern California, 2019, for those of us who would call ourselves Christians or followers of Jesus, man, it seems like most people like we're describing right now of tax collectors and sinners, they don't want to be near us because we tend to be pretty judgy and we tend to be people who are maybe even afraid that their sinfulness might rub off on us, so we want some distance. Now, by the way, if, in case you begin to think this is me talking about you, I'm looking in the mirror today as well. This isn't the group of people that typically want to hang out with me. Now, maybe it has something to do with the title pastor, but I think it's more than that. I'm not the, the most fun at parties. I'm not the person that everyone wants to be drawn to, and I was processing that this week and going, Jesus, you are incredibly winsome. And by the way, we'll be careful today to say it's not just this group of people that wanted to be near Jesus. It was a Pharisee in John chapter three, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night and said, help me understand. All kinds of people were drawn to Jesus. 
And it's a great question to ask ourselves, God, who's drawn to me? Maybe even a question that might be a little bit more significant is also in your notes. Maybe a more telling question is, who would you like to be drawn near to you? Who would you like to be drawn near to you? Who would be the type of people that you would say, I wish I was a magnet for? Because often, if we're honest, we're going to say people who either culturally or career-wise or socially are up and to the right. People who are moving forward, people who are just doing great things, people who I could get something from. What could Jesus get from tax collectors and sinners but a bad reputation? There's nothing to win. But that's a group of people he invited to draw near, invited to be close. And to me, this is a powerful thing for us to stop and consider. And also powerful to know as we look into the rest of this parable today, to not romanticize this parable and lose sight of who is the audience. It is both tax collectors, sinners drawn to Jesus, and those Pharisees and teachers of the law on the outside looking in who are muttering and grumbling and judging. And like any time that we look into a narrative or look into a parable, it's really important to identify the characters and also to understand who do you and I identify with most. And if I'm honest, I'm going to say, God, I think I feel a lot more like a Pharisee in this narrative than others. That, that, takes, us, that takes us to a place where we have to go, God, you got to do a work in me. God, I need help to be able to see the value of people, to see image bearers, to see people that you love no matter how far away they are from you presently. The thing you and I get most excited about in our stories is when people come up here on this stage and they're here to get baptized and they just share a very short amount of their story, but when they do, when their stories talk about how far away they were from God, we get all the more excited because we see the power of what God can do to transform and change lives. Why would we not want to be a part of those people's stories? Jesus was. And as followers of his, that's the heart I want you to hear from the very beginning today. Number two in your notes, God rejoices when the lost are found. God rejoices when the lost are found. We're continuing in Luke 15, verse three. Then Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Remember the context, this is huge. Remember who Jesus is fully aware is around him right now. Tax collectors and sinners are very close. Pharisees are in earshot. They're hearing this whole thing. And Jesus begins to tell them, he begins to take kingdom secrets that are hidden in plain sight and begins to use an analogy, something they can understand. Luke 15 is actually this powerful chapter, one of my favorites in the Bible. And, and what we really see is just the amazing um, skill of who I would say is the greatest communicator to ever walk the face of the earth. Jesus sets his audience up so well. He begins with this parable of the lost sheep. 
He goes next to a parable of a lost coin, two unhuman um, characters that he's talking about, but then he's gonna go into this third parable and they're just gonna go one after the next. They're very much meant to flow in thought. But then he goes to the one that Bill and Bill Bourne Sr. preached on two weeks ago. Did an amazing job of bringing out this idea that God loves not just unhuman things that are lost, he loves human people who are far away from him. Some who far, travel into far off distant lands and others who are right outside in the field, right under the roof, but couldn't be farther in their heart from the Father. Jesus is setting them up. As they were hearing the parable of the lost sheep, I think many people, and we'll unpack it in just a minute, many people were like, well, that's what a shepherd does. He goes and gets the lost sheep. When they're hearing the parable of the lost coin, for us that loses a lot in translation, it was probably more like a set of 10 coins that were a part of like an engagement ring idea in our culture. And so by losing one, it'd be like losing a diamond off of a ring. You're gonna look hard, not only for the value of what's lost, but the sentiment of what's lost. And so this lady scours her house. She cleans everything, finally finds a coin. And what does she do? She runs out and finds her friends. Hey, you'll never believe this. I lost this, but now it's found. And they all celebrate. Those were things that Jesus's audience could track with. And they were listening and they were going, yeah, that's kind of, I've lost things and I get excited when I find them too. In our family last week, it was the remote control. (laughs) And I'll tell you, I've never seen it take five people to find it, but it did. And when we did, then we did a dance, you know, finally life has been restored right? Sad, but true. So, so, so we get it. We get it. When something is lost, that has been found. You get excited. You rejoice. That all makes sense. But then Jesus throws the curveball, the curve they never saw coming, a, a total wanton, sinful, disrespectful, horrible son that I'm sure every Pharisee as they were listening were thinking, that's exactly who Jesus is talking to. Lay it on. Smack them. This is it. But remember, it's not just the parable of the lost son, it's the lost sons. Because Jesus doubles back and he talks about the older brother. He talks about this one who stayed physically close, but in his heart couldn't be farther away. Never understood his father's love for him, nor truly loved his own father. At that point, Everyone was tracking with Jesus for the first two, but by the time the third one comes, their jaws drop and they don't know what to think. God loves people who wished he was dead? Yeah. God loves people that are so self-righteous that in a weird way they demonstrate they don't love their father either? Yeah. That's who the father loves. So that's the context of where we're at and what goes on throughout Luke 15. Double back to where we're at. We're at this this setup. This is the setup parable of the lost sheep. And I wanted to share it today because I think it demonstrates so well the heart of God who doesn't love lost things to stay lost. He loves them and he wants to find them. First off, before we can go there, let's unpack a little bit about what shepherding was like 2,000 years ago. A lot of us don't live agrarian lives and probably aren't raising sheep in your backyard. So let's talk a little bit about what that is. Shepherding was a very normal job in the first century in Palestine. 
It was not abnormal at all. It was very common. And, and from scripture, we know actually a lot of things about shepherding and sheep. Go back to a whole psalm is dedicated. David the shepherd takes the perspective of a sheep. And what does he say? The Lord is my shepherd. Moses and other patriarchs served as shepherds before God settled them in the land. Jesus, what is he called? The Lamb of God. Jesus, what does he say about himself? John 10, I am the good shepherd. So all kinds of shepherding references throughout the Bible. But I would say this, the role of shepherd lacked respect for sure. It was not this highly esteemed role. In our culture, it might be that of someone who's a garbage collector or a janitor. And by the way, just in case you don't think that I'm kind of sending bad vibes towards those people, I absolutely love people who do those roles because it means I don't have to. So I'm very grateful. But in the terms of the respect that our culture has for different careers, that's a probably a little on par of where shepherds were esteemed. Here's an interesting thing though, an important part of a shepherd's responsibility was that he didn't lose any of the flock. And if he did, it would come out of his own paycheck. That's how it worked. So your job, you have 100 sheep, you take them out, you graze them, and when you bring them back, you bring back the 100 that you took, okay? When I was a youth pastor, we'd go on trips, and we, when I'd bring back everyone I was supposed to bring back, I'd say it was a pretty good day, you know? When I lost a couple, it didn't go so well, okay? So the same thing was true in this sense. That's who you're responsible for. The only way they could get off the hook from having to be financially responsible is if they could prove, demonstrate that a predator ate them, ate the sheep. Otherwise, it was on the shepherd. So now that kind of anticipates and that kind of amplifies a little bit of the concern. This isn't just the idea, oh, I love, you know, Bucky, the sheep. I really care about him, want him to succeed and do well. It's like, hey, if Bucky gets lost, I'm paying for Bucky. That is not a good deal. So I'm going to take good care of him. Think of it this way. People today, while we might not be familiar so much with the shepherding analogy, we have a lot of people who serve in service industries with, as cashiers. So imagine people love waiting on customers, taking good care of them, but if they're taking care of the cash register and that cash register comes up short at the end of their shift, it's coming out of their check. So there's a lot of motivation to not get that wrong. And so the same is true for a shepherd. It was not only a concern of I care for my sheep, it's I care for my paycheck and I don't want that taken out. So that's what's going on in this story. That's a little bit of the kind of background and the ethos of what was going on and, and what people would have understood clearly. Maybe the best biblical reference for us today talking about sheep and shepherd might be the words from Isaiah, we all like sheep have gone astray. That's what's going on here today. We don't know the specifics, but we can all relate to wandering away from the flock. Maybe because of something shiny, Maybe out of pure defiance, I'm just sick of that shepherd always telling me what to do. Maybe out of a sense of just being distracted and paying attention over here when the rest of the flock goes that way, now all of a sudden, you don't know where anybody is. Either way, we all get it. It's true for the sheep just like it's true for us. We easily wander away. We easily are led astray and become missing. Look at Jesus' follow-up point. He says, if you're missing a sheep... You don't just go on with your life. You don't just say, ho-hum, I guess we're going to be fine without Bucky. We'll just kind of do our own thing. And I don't know why I named the sheep Bucky. I apologize. It's just the name that came to my mind. When I look at a sheep, I go, Bucky, I think that's it. So, so within that, you don't get, the shepherd never demonstrates that. What a shepherd immediately demonstrates is, hey, 
I've got, I'm all back. There's only 99. Bucky's missing. We're going to keep these in good hands and I'm out of here. It's going to cost me my time, my energy, potentially even be physically challenging for me. Who knows what predators are out in the dark, but I'm going to go hunt down the sheep. That's why I love today that we sang the song Reckless Love. Because you really sense as you're listening to it, it's written from the attitude of this shepherd. Look at the bridge. No shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. No wall you won't kick down, no lie you won't tear down coming after me. Even this last week, I was reading devotionally in the book of Ezekiel, and in Ezekiel 34, God is likening the priest to that of shepherds over the nation, and he is completely just frustrated by them. They have done everything wrong. What I found was interesting in all the roles that they're being corrected about failing in, one of the roles besides that of feeding the sheep, protecting the sheep, one of that was that of the idea they didn't go after the lost sheep of Israel. Numerous times, that's a criticism given to the priests of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel is they didn't go after the lost sheep. It's just part of the job. Every shepherd knows that. So in the meantime, the shepherd realizes one of the sheep is missing. He goes out to look for the lost sheep. What does he do with the 99? What's he do with the flock? Some read this parable and they get very concerned about the well-being of the flock while the shepherd goes after the one sheep. And, and I can understand that to a degree. I can understand the sense of, are you really just going to abandon these 99? When some of your translations even say that they, he abandoned them in the wilderness, which all the more is kind of like, hey, there's a cliff. Don't jump. And I'm going to go, you know, go grab this other sheep. So it sounds almost wanton or cavalier. But I want you to know it's not. Number one, the shepherd most likely had under shepherds that he left in charge of the sheep while he went to find the other one. Number two, that word shouldn't be translated at all wilderness. Open country is the NIV that I read, but look what a commentator wrote. He says, this root word does not suggest absolute barrenness, but an unappropriated territory affording free range for shepherds and their flocks. He just found a good pasture for them to hang out in, left under shepherds over them, and then went to go do the business of what a good shepherd does. But I want you to see this. I want you to see a significant thing today. Not only the love of a shepherd or even the financial concern of a shepherd to go motivate him to go get this sheep, but I want you, as it were, if we could say today that sheep think, they don't, okay? And, and they don't in lots of ways. Like sheep are really considered very dumb animals, but they definitely don't think like we do. But I want to put this out to you. I think even the flock was grateful that the shepherd went after the sheep. Now you're like, come on, Todd, that's a bit of a stretch. I get it. But, but think of it this way. That sheep was one ewes lamb. That sheep was a brother or a sister to other sheep in the flock. That sheep was a part of a community of other sheep that had been tended together for a while by this shepherd. And here's the wild thing. That flock was thinking, I, if they could think, they would be saying, go after the sheep because we don't want life to go on without Bucky. And even more importantly, we were like Bucky last week. We were the ones that you went after. We were the ones you had to chase down. So there's no ill feeling, there's no sense of loss that he's going after the one because he's gone after them in the very same way at one time or another. 
Don't worry about the flock. The flock was taken care of well, and the flock knew what it was to actually be lost and be found. And they were grateful that shepherd was going after the sheep. The shepherd finds the sheep in the parable joyfully. And I think about that word, by the way, not to equate my TV remote and a sheep, but I will tell you, when we found the TV remote, it wasn't joyful, I was frustrated. Who put it there? Why cannot the Arnett family always put a... That's anything but joy, okay? This shepherd joyfully, joyfully puts the sheep back on his shoulders and carries it home. And as soon as he arrives home, he calls everyone over to celebrate with him. Look at what Jesus says, verse seven. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus connects the dot. Here's this plain thing, shepherding and lost sheep. Everyone gets that. He connects the dot now to a kingdom principle, something they didn't understand. God loves lost people, but he doesn't love them to stay lost. He actively goes searching for them and brings them back. Here's the interesting thing. The key is that when a sinner, remember that's the exact same Greek word. So Jesus is saying that when a sinner repents, earlier Luke has said that's the people hanging out. So be like this, Jesus saying, when one of you repent and come back to the Father, there's more rejoicing than when 99 people who are right with God don't need to repent. He was making it crystal clear they couldn't have missed it. God loves you no matter how distant you are from him. You haven't done anything to reduce or to minimize his love for you. Just like the story, the shepherd didn't throw a party because the 99 made it back. That was expected. They were under his care. They were watching with him. But there was a party thrown when the one that was missing returned. And by the way, didn't come returning on their own, came returning on the shoulders of a shepherd. The shepherd had to go find it. By the way, I really want to make sure you don't miss this today. Don't be confused about this. As Jesus is sharing this parable, he's not looking at the tax collectors and sinners and saying, when one of you gets your act together only... He's actually saying these same words to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Don't confuse them for being the 99 who didn't need to repent because it's just gonna be in a few verses later that he completely implicates them as the older brothers who also were distant from the father. He's not talking to two audiences, he's talking to one. Everyone listening to this right now needs to know that you need to repent, turn around, follow God's ways. Those of you who are wayward and just don't care, as well as those of you who are religious and self-righteous, every one of you need to understand that God loves you and that you need him. That's what this parable is about. Don't for a minute think that Jesus was calling the Pharisees and the teachers of the law righteous, having their act together. They anything but had their act together. They were gonna be the ones who would actually put him on a, a cross and kill him. So they had it all backwards, all mixed up. Don't miss today that this has nothing to do with God having a lesser love for the 99. 
In no way does it communicate that. 99 who are living according to his design, but that he loves lost people, sinners, who need to be found, and he rightly celebrates when the lost person is found and repents. Just hear this. It just makes sense. It's completely appropriate that the shepherd throws a party just like it is that the father throws a party when someone turns around. Finally today, number three, once the lost have been found, they join the search party. Once the lost have been found, they join the search party. I want to turn gears. I want you to hear these words from the Apostle Paul writing to his protege, Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Same words, save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, watch, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. The reason why I wanted to finish with this passage today is twofold. Number one, I want you to see what Paul understood is that once I was found, considering himself to be the worst of sinners, once I was found, I realized quickly that my story was going to be a testimony. My story was going to be powerful in the way that God wanted to reach other people. It was for a purpose that God saved me when and how he did. But here's the other thing I don't want you to miss. Remember we said earlier that Jesus had two social types of groups with him. Sinners, tax collectors, but then the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Let's go back into Paul's story. Philippians 3 says that Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Jew of Jews. He was religious as the day was long, had this amazing religious pedigree. Yet Paul says, I was the worst of all sinners. This is why I said before, don't confuse for a moment that the Pharisees were these righteous people who didn't need to repent. They were self-righteous and needed to repent of that. So Paul is saying, God, he chose to do this work in me to be an example to the way he could get a hold of anyone's life, no matter how wayward or no matter how religious they may be, we all need a savior. It's the mission that we talk about every week at Trinity Church. We talk about being a people rooted in Jesus and maybe another way of saying that today is a people who are found. Being rooted in Jesus is, is not something about how hard you work or how much you've done to achieve something. It simply says, God, I need a savior and I wanna more and more sink my roots deeply into who he is and be identified with him. So being found is a lot like that idea of being rooted. And reaching our world simply means joining the search team. Once I've been someone who's been found, I see the heart of the Father is not just that I would be in his family, in his flock, but there are people that God has supernaturally and strategically placed around me who are still ones, who are still lost and need to be found. God wants to use me. I have a story like Paul had a story and God wants to turn the 99 around to be seeking to be a part of the search party for the ones. That's what the gospel has always moved forward as. Most effectively through relationships, one found person at a time. 
while this should be somewhat of a natural reaction, it just should make sense to us, we know it's not. We know that's why we have to keep reminding ourselves of it so often, it's so easy to so quickly lean into the fact of, God, I'm good, I'm safe, I'm found, and forget that God has something for us, not just in being found, but in being a part of finding others. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That was his posture. We just read it from 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus came to save sinners. If that was Jesus' attitude and that was his approach, how could it not be ours? Again, it just makes sense. I thought it'd be really cool for today's message to find something online, a really cool story about maybe someone who had been lost, like think of like search and rescue, lost in the mountains, lost in a canyon somewhere, and someone who goes lost, who gets found, and as a result, they get involved in being on a search and rescue team. Like that, that, just, that analogy just sung to me, it made a lot of sense. So I started doing an online search, and I found a title that I thought was really cool, it just connected the dots so well. This was the headline, from rescued to rescuer. This is perfect. This is exactly what I'm looking for. And then I read on and it was about a dog. So it's great for the dog. Great. But, but you get it. That, that's really the heartbeat. Someone who's been rescued, who in turn is engaged in being involved in the rescue effort. But I will say after a relative extensive search, I didn't find any of the articles I was looking for. But I did, however, find multiple articles about how much it costs to rescue people who are lost. This is one of the headings I found. Search and rescue, colon, a privilege for the saved or a burden for society? Uh-huh. I didn't find any articles that praised how it's a worthwhile and noble task to be a part of a search and rescue team, especially from someone who had been found but just that it's a great concern how much it costs taxpayers to pay for people who will go do the searching. And I was reading that article and it became eerily familiar to what some church business meetings are like. We're spending a lot of money on programs and people to reach people, but what about us? What about the 99s, the found? What are we doing for us? Are we gonna be okay? It reminds me of the picture I've shown you before. It just screams to me when I was reading that article and thinking about it in a church context. A group of people who are safe from incredible threat, incredible storms all around them, but absolutely content to not be concerned about anyone else. Now there's a few, a guy hanging off the, the deck, another one out in the boat, but for the most part, people, and just like the title of the painting goes, who cares? They obviously show they don't. Now, I want to tell you, I'm really glad that's not. That's not the tone, not the ethos of Trinity Church. People, you, who consistently put their money and their feet and their sweat toward rescuing lost people here locally as well as globally. Watch this. Last year in November and December, you gave $50,000 to something we call our Advent Conspiracy Offering just so we could give it away. We gave it away for projects in Spain, in Portugal, in Mexico, globally, as well as here locally with ministries like our own Light and Power Ministries and Micah House. You did that. 
In April, you gave $49,000 to send kids, not just from Trinity, but from our community to camp. You just heard the stats this morning on our own kids' camp, and middle school and high school camp are still coming next month in July. You did that. 215 people from Trinity Church last fiscal year went on short-term missions trips. And we commissioned on this stage six to go globally long-term. Elders and pastors from Trinity Church have been working for the last few months with a strategic planning organization, a group called Intentional Churches. And they have told us our sole reason for being in existence is to help local churches better fulfill the great commission in their area. That's what your elders and pastors are fine-tuning their perspective and their focus and prayerfully considering how we can get better at that. You have shown a great attitude in making a service shift in times. When I tell people that we hadn't changed our service times in over 18 years, their jaw drops. And their first question to me is, what kind of rotten vegetables got thrown at you when you shared that? I tell them none. And people have had a great attitude because not only are we shifting our mornings on Sundays, but I think most importantly, very soon in August, we'll launch a 5.30 Sunday night service. And we're gonna be able to reach people we could never reach before, where we had a one-size-fits-all Sunday morning slot. People who won't or couldn't come on Sunday mornings now can. And that's gonna be because of your flexibility and your interest in seeing God's mission get accomplished in our area. I love that. We plaster our website, your Trinity this week, all over our campus with a mission that says that we are people called to be rooted in Jesus reaching our worlds. We wanna keep what Jesus elevated in front of us so we can be mindful of the fact that's why we're on the planet. That's you. And I'm so excited to be at a church who gets it and a church who wants to keep being a part of what God is doing to rescue lost people. So let's make this week's now what our heartbeat this week. If you're part of the 99, be grateful that you've been found and join the search party for your ones. Let's pray. Father, I wanna say thank you for this parable today that screams to us how much you love lost people, how much you have loved us because every single one of us no matter what the story, no matter what the background, we were either a people who were very wayward or a people who were self-righteous, people who needed a savior, what only you could provide. And I'm so grateful that this parable so clearly communicates that you come after us. You're the shepherd hunting for, searching for, relentlessly looking for the sheep. We're so grateful you found us and would you this week again attune our hearts not only in gratitude but God in mission. The ones in our lives, would we pay attention to the needs around us? Would we pay attention to people who are searching for you? Would you use us powerfully? You may be here today and you would say, Todd, I actually am never really responded to this invitation of Jesus to be part of the 99. I am lost, and I have great news for you. If that's you and you're here today and you wanna do something about that, you wanna respond to this great gift 
of a God who is pursuing you, a God who is wakening the dead. I want to encourage you to pray this prayer today. A, Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. It's the same word we've used in this passage today, and no matter how wayward or no matter how self-righteous, the reality is, is that you need You need help. B, believe. Believe that Jesus is the only Savior available. Believe that he lived a sinless life, that he died a sacrificial death. Believe that he was raised supernaturally on the third day. C is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I want to put my stock, my confidence, my hope in what only you could do rather than in the scales of hoping that somehow my good will outweigh my bad and I'll be good enough because the Bible teaches there's no way that can ever happen. I choose to put my hope in what you've already accomplished for me. Pray that prayer today. And the Bible says, like we just read, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents Would you today take that step? Father, we love you. Help us to be about your business this week. We pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen.